A deeply intriguing aspect of Jimmy's narrative is the borderline obsession of a journalist who worked for the LA Times named Chuck Phillips. At one time, Chuck was a Pulitzer Prize winning writer who covered crime and music at the LA Times. He was a rising star. The problem with Chuck is he started to print false stories in the LA Times. In another podcast I did called The Dossier, the LAPD cover-up of the murder of Biggie, I uncovered sourced proof that Phillips was in bed with one of the top brass at the LAPD, Mike Burkow. Burkow was feeding him information to print in the paper. To go further, Phillips wrote in upwards of five stories that created false narratives surrounding the investigation into Biggie's murder. Chuck Phillips also tried to ruin the career of storied FBI agent Phil Carson, who was investigating the LAPD's involvement in the murder of Biggie. Phillips was also sued by Jimmy and by Puffy, who both received out-of-court settlements from the paper. I think there is a whole other podcast to be done on the work of Chuck Phillips, as the guy has completely disappeared off the map. He was fired from the LA Times to never write another story. I've hired private investigators to try and find Chuck and see if he would talk to me, but I've come up short. In this call, Jimmy talks about Chuck Phillips and his experience. Hey, and so you think after Mr. Easton wrote that article that that's when Chuck Phillips started to gain more interest in your story? I mean, the rumors was there, the name was there, but there was really no feedback as far as before I did that article. Like, people would ask me for interviews, and then they would spring the Tupac question on me. And that yeah. was something that the publicists would tell them. They couldn't ask, you know what I'm saying? Because I didn't want to talk about it. But that twin peak of the interest pretty much um, started. Because if you look at articles before that, they would only talk about my musical accolade and the things mm -hmm. that I've done in the music business. Everything after that turned to, um, you know, the allegations of Tupac and magnifying what he said in that record. Well, what I don't understand, and, and you know, with that record that he made where he mentions my name, he mentions a whole bunch of people's names in that record. He starts off the record talking about Nas, Jay-Z, and that, really everybody. And then he mentions this one little, maybe a bar worth of, of something. And it turned into a whole other kind of animal. The crazy thing about that whole thing is me and this guy never was adversary. We've never had an argument outside of him feeling like, hey man, can you tell me how these guys knew that I was coming to the studio? But at the end of the day, me and this guy never had no problem. We had no problem at all. And yeah. I'm the last person that that had a problem with Pop. I had no reason to have a problem with him. I had to, he, he didn't have enough jewelry for me to want to rob him. If that was the case, then we would have done that to Puffy and everybody else in the industry that had a, a diamond Rolex watch and, and chain and so on and so forth. I can honestly say that in Jimmy's life, that event at Quad Studios haunted him for the rest of his career. He was blamed by Tupac 
for setting him up. He was also blamed by Tupac fans. Quad Studios, to me, is still an enduring mystery, and one, I would argue, changed the fate and lives of everyone at that studio in profound ways. I will state a personal opinion on the idea that Jimmy set Tupac up to be robbed. Jimmy had Tupac coming to Quad Studios to record a record with an artist he managed named Little Sean. Jimmy's a chess player. He doesn't play checkers. A record with Tupac on it with one of his artists was way more valuable than robbing Tupac of whatever pieces of jewelry he had on. Jimmy states it. Why would he rob him? For what? Was it money? You know, there, there was no reason for me to to have a problem. But, you know, in his death, you know, one of the things that I started telling writers was like, oh, like, I wish Pac was alive so that we could both ask him. Why did he mention me in that record? And, what, and if you knew Pac, you knew why he mentioned street guys and the record is only because that that was the the kind of attention he wanted toward that record saying the things that he's saying that it's the realest thing that he ever wrote he couldn't mention imaginary people he had to mention real guys who was in the streets you know so so it, it, it almost makes sense for him to mention me and Tut and whoever else he mentioned in that record but um you know, all of that was unfounded, man. And um, again, I wish that that Pac was alive to to the point of where he would have been able to answer that. Like, why did you mention these guys in the record, and knowing that we didn't have anything to do with nothing that happened? To them. No. And when you look at your story and you look at what ends up happening with Chuck Phillips and him writing what is basically uh, fiction, you sue him and you win. And I know you can you can read, you know, what your actions were, but when you're when you're trying to become as successful as you're trying to become and there are stories that are blatantly wrong, how, how does that affect you psychologically and mentally? Because you know, you do say even in the Vibe article that your focus was to become as successful as you possibly could in the music industry and you were on your way to doing that. What did that do to, to you psychologically to have an institution like the LA Times and pretty much anything on the internet that you read have your name attached to something that is, is almost like a fantasy? Well, you know, it, it almost starts to dictate some of your actions. And, and and the only reason it dictates it a little bit is only because you are seeing the the funny faces. You're, you're watching question marks on the faces of people. And one of the things that I used to do to dispel to dispel any of those myths is to say, if y'all believe the things that y'all hear about me, because remember, it wasn't only that the the Tupac um, fiction that I was accused of. It was also that I was racketeering in the business, that I was extorting in the business, that I was, you know, uh, I was strong on, that I was walking in people's offices and, and shaking them down. 
that I was, you know, there were so many rumors out there. And I used to tell people, if y'all, there's no way for me to hide any of those. This call is from a federal prison. There's no way for me to hide any of those facts if they're true. If they're true, then they have to be an executive. They have to be an A&R. They have to be a producer. Somebody who could come forward and say, yo, Jimmy grabbed me, pistol whipped me, made me give them piece of my check every time that we, we did something together with him. They would have to have those kind of real stories where a guy could come forward and say that. You can't tell me that everybody's afraid to speak forward the way that people hide behind computers now and, and, and spit out all this fiction. So they, they would be somebody who could come forward and say, yeah, man, I had a run-in with this guy. I, I did business with Jimmy Roseland and he dealt with me unfavorably and not like a businessman. There is no one. I can say that with 100% certainty. That there's no one out there that can say that I even gave them a bad contract. Now, when you look at other guys who have these rumors around them, there's guys who would say, yo, he took my publisher. Yo, he took yeah. my royalty money. He took this and that from me. There is no one with 100% certainty that can say that I did that to them. And so that alone, my record on that alone should speak volumes to people that a lot of this is fiction. And speaking to that, was it a struggle because that there was this interpretation from what people read and what was printed uh, around you? Did it hinder your ability to do business? It absolutely, absolutely did. Did hinder my my ability to be the best executive and manager um, and executive producer that I could. I, again, I would walk into to offices and you would see, hear the whispers from secretaries and you would see the extra security bumped up when I was in Los Angeles walking into the Interscope building. And it was for no reason. And, and, and because of that, I used to go into these offices alone. I wouldn't go in there with, with two or three you know, people that are just business people with me because I had to try to dispel the, the perception. For some reason, the, the, the Jimmy Henchman connotation was, was real to people. It, it became real. Of something that was a myth became real in the mind of people. And so it ended my business on all aspects. I, I was so mindful to not even raise a voice, raise my voice in a meeting, because I didn't want them to feel like I was intimidating them in any way. Even though I'm not a yeller and a screamer, but I was extra conscious that I didn't do those things. And yes, it affected my business in, in so many different ways because the quality of management that I did, I should have been able to manage a Lady Gaga or a, a Britney Spears or Mariah Carey. But because of the stigma, it kept me in the lower realms of management. And when I say the lower realms, I'm just talking about the urban hip-hop stuff that sure. that wasn't, you know, that was more underground than it was more pop. And I knew how to do pop records just like how I knew how to do urban records. It, it didn't matter to me. But because of those rumors, and this is why people like Chris Light 
in the shocking compared was able to go grab bigger stars. And when me and them were all on the same level, we came up under the same school. We came up the same time of management, which was the early 90s. So yeah. we were all in the same class. Me, Steve Stout, Chris Lighty, Shaquem Compare. We were all in the same class of managers. However, because of the rumors, it kept me in a, a, a certain fear uh, or sphere that I couldn't get out of. Why do you think the NYPD never were able to just go and, and say, hey, this is what happened at Bond Studios. This is the person that did it. And we're going to put this this whole case to bed that would sort of end all the speculation and the rumors and the conspiracy theories. It, it, it would seem to me that it would, you know, that it would be a pretty easy case to just sort of solve and put to bed with the amount of resources that they seem to devote to hip hop and and its various. If you look at the Murder Inc. trial and all the hip hop police and the book and all this stuff. And then these things just sort of float out there with no conclusion, thus allowing people to speculate and write stories and tell stories from jail and, you know, informants or people trying to get less lesser sentences. Well, I, I think they because it wasn't a murder, because it was an assault, I think that they kind of felt that it doesn't need to be solved. Yeah. Let the rumors be out there, whatever that rumor created people say that it was a so-called war between east and west that's what triggered it i think you know none of the record companies you can't only blame nypd i also blame the record company i blame interscope as much as i blame arista with bad boy yeah i blame arista with bad boy as much as i blame interscope as much as i blame nypd because yeah. you're, you're, in Square, you're in Times Square and you got cameras and you have all these things, you have witnesses, there's no way why it shouldn't have been solved. I, in fact, I wish it was solved so that way it wouldn't fall on my shoulders as fast. Tupac's assault ended up becoming what Kennedy's assassination was in Dallas. It just yeah. was like the shooter at, on the grassy knoll and these, all these theories, and they just couldn't been hand in it. It just became so complex. Um, and and I, I'm sure the record company resources with the NYPD resources, this could have been solved. In but because somebody was making some money on this situation. So to, to, come this back, is, to come back full circle with all this stuff that is going on, when do you think... Todd Kaminsky comes into the picture in terms of him wanting to make a name for himself or his sort of themes in the stuff that you've said. There was a certain amount of obsession in, in, to, to make a case. And how does that manifest itself in, in your life? Well, you, you have the article that's out there. You have the big bad wolf in New York. Look, the music business itself is 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 interesting. Yeah. Anybody under thirty at that time would be like, Man, what's going on? And one of the things because game and G Unit was so big, this article is out it was on everybody's radar. 
and this is how I know that um, it's on everybody's radar. When the shooting at Hot 97 happened, me and Chris Lighty enough set up the, the staged handshake between 50 and Game in Harlem with um, Al Sharpton, Russell Simmons, and all of that. Yeah. What ended up happening is when me and Game is walking out of the back door, there's a slew of NYPD that's there. I I swear to you, and I'm not making this up. When they saw me, all I could do is read the lips of the police saying, there go Jimmy Henchman. That's all I saw that they lips moving, saying, whispering to each other. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Are these guys sort of like undercover detectives? Are they plain clothes? What are they? Just what did no, you think they were? Undercover. Yeah, they undercover detectives. You could tell they're they're detectives, so you know they're undercover. This call is from a federal prison. It looks like a, a task force, you know, that um, looks like a task force that's out there just yep. for us. And so, and so when we get into the van, when we get into the van and we drive off, I I see that they're telling. So we stop at 125th Street because Game wanted to get something to eat. And I let it's 12 of them all together. Because Game rolled deep with his guys from California. They all empty the truck. I get under the seat of the van because I don't want to be a part of this town that the police has. On, I'm thinking they, they're interested in Game because that's where the shooting happened with, with 50. Yeah. Man, when they didn't see me get out of that van, they stayed on the van to the point of where I just had to get from under the seat because the driver kept telling me they're still on us. And I just I just told them to let me out and I took the train to, to shake the tail. And I, for the life of me, I couldn't understand. Me as the manager, why are they telling me and not the rapper guy? Sure. Because I, I wasn't even at Hot 97 when the shooting happened. So that's when I knew that these people were interested in me, not game or the rapper or any, any of that other stuff. And I think in, 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 at that point, they got to the point of where they were like, you know, Todd coming to them because he was a Queens DA guy. And I could just imagine him being fascinated by 50 Cent. And here it is. I'm in the shadow of game. And I could see him saying, I need to get to this guy. Because if you talk to guys in the East Coast, my name would come up. If you talk to guys in the West Coast, it would be Suge's name that came up. So, you know, Suge was a prominent figure. I never was the prominent figure guy who people would as soon as they saw me notice and so I could see that at that point that's when I got on the, on the radar of Todd Kaminsky in Queens while he was a Queens DA and he wanted to take my case to the Eastern District when he moved over to that particular district. Is there anything you can do when when something like this is happening or, or is it just sort of you have to go about your life and continue trying to do business. Here's the, no, absolutely. But here, here's here's the thing. 
Ethan Brown put out there in that article, if I, if you, if I could remember correctly, he put out there that I was being investigated by the Eastern District already because they had brought Jack and Haitian Jack and they had brought Cutdown for Quetzman in regards right. to me with the Tupac thing. He said something to the effect that I was already a suspect. So I, now I wasn't. They weren't even, I wasn't even on them people's radar at the that time. They wasn't even thinking about it. This is why I say that that article did so much damage to me because he put that in the mind that I was already being investigated. So I go to Jeff Lickman at that point and I tell Jeff Lickman to investigate to see if I'm really being investigated. Yeah. Yes, because Jeff worked in the Eastern District so much, we find out we find out that I'm not even really being investigated. But the seed has been planted already. Like, I'm being investigated. A name that Jimmy has always been connected at the hip by is Haitian Jack, another Brooklyn gangster who crossed paths with Jimmy. The relationship between Jack and Jimmy is enough for its own show. To go further, Haitian Jack was one of the guys in the room the night Tupac was charged with rape. And he was also charged alongside Tupac. I've had a source for many years who at the time was working undercover inside hip hop. And this source has told me numerous times that Haitian Jack was an informant. He has always been an informant. And take that information for what you will. Many believe it was Jack who set up Tupac at Quad Studios. Again, another myth that to this day, who knows where the truth lies. So it, 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 so all of a sudden now, when, when, when Todd Kaminsky gets to the Eastern District, he pulls down Dexter Isaac, you know, to, to, to talk about Tupac because they had no other case on. So, and, and this is around the time when I start seeing that I'm starting to be trapped. Really, after the, the Top 97 shooting, I'm starting to be tell man, what for the life of me. I couldn't understand is why me as the manager is being tell. Why are y'all telling me so? Like, why do y'all keep having a guy at my front door? And when I jump in the car with my driver, he's telling me, yo, they, they, they fuck me. To the point of where I start just taking the train to shake any tell, stop staying home at night and stuff like that. And for the life of me, I was like, man, why are these people, why they keep bothering me? I'm not doing nothing. I don't rap, I don't do nothing. All I'm doing is real business at the time. So again, this is what why I say that this Ethan Brown article at five just puts me on everybody's radar. Especially when he says I'm already being investigated because Tut and Jack um, had came down for questioning and I should have reason to be afraid um, because they may implement me in it. So when you look at the history of a Haitian Jack and a Tut, and you got me down like those are my soldiers, then what is a prosecutor who want to make a name? These guys are notorious in the street. If he want to make a name, if I'm the un if I'm the boss of these guys, and these rumors are out there, then everybody who got arrested, they just started saying my name. That's because the first person they would ask about was me. Guys in the street would tell me, yo, man, I just want to give you a heads up. 
um, I got when I got arrested, they kept asking about you. I don't know why, but your name always was coming up. And this didn't only happen one or two times. This would happen repeatedly and repeatedly. It was almost like it was too good to be true that I was in the street and I wasn't killing people. And and then you had the other, like I said, the other rumors that I was walking into people's offices with a gun in my waist and putting it on the table. And they would believe, they were believing these rumors. Because it got to even a point to where they started talking to people at the record companies and they started telling hey man, be careful because um, they asked, for, were you threatening us up here? I was like, really? And, and, and it never was a joke to me, but when I would be around some guys who would be around me, I'd be like, man, could you believe these people really believe that I'm running around here extorting people? So, so it all evolved around all of those things. And, and I guess having game as a gangbanger, game in the height of the G-Unit, game in the hype of some shootings, didn't help the situation. It just only really made it worse because they didn't believe that game as a rapper was, was doing anything. They was always looking at his manager as who who had a criminal history that had to be the one. And not only that, he's a suspect in the Tupac shoot. Because guess what? The only evidence we got is because of a rap song that Tupac said. And the only time these people want to use rap songs against you is when it's negative. Or if somebody says anything positive about you, it is it's, it's almost like it's just rhetoric. But when yeah. they say something negative, it's almost, it's, it's the truth. It's the Bible. Did, did they ever say directly to Lickman, hey, we're, we're looking at Jimmy in regards to, 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 to Quad Studios, or we're looking at Jimmy, or whatever Lickman heard. Did they ever, ever say anything directly to him? Like, hey, hey, Jeff, we're trying to put a case on Jimmy, or we're trying... To, to find some stuff out it seems like it was the opposite that they're they're the the only people that were putting a case on you was the media and the the people who for whatever reason go on the internet and write articles that are that are unsubstantiated and not supported or are supported by basically liars um did they ever say that to lichtman here i mentioned lichtman jeffrey lichtman he was always Jimmy's attorney. Lickman has represented John Gotti Jr. He also represented El Chapo recently, and Jimmy really trusted him. If the feds were on Jimmy, Lickman could possibly get information. But you have to understand, when the DEA or FBI or the Eastern and Southern District is investigating you, this is the stuff you see in the movies. These investigations are strung out over the course of years. Millions of dollars are spent even prior to indicting someone. The money spent on wiretaps, surveillance, man hours, overtime. I'm sure they put cameras even outside of Jimmy's office. And as far as the time spent by the prosecutors, it's astronomical. In one case I reported on in the Southern District, a defense attorney told me 
that the federal government spent in upwards of $10 million just on that one case alone. And one more thing to think about. Guys like Jeffrey Lickman, they don't come cheap. He's the top of the top. To defend yourself properly against the Eastern or Southern District, you need on the low end half a million dollars. Some people spend millions on their defense. No, but we we had figured it out when they pulled Dexter Isaac down. So yeah, they pulled Dexter Isaac who, down. Explain to me who he his name comes up in a bunch of internet articles and uh, the New York Post and all these things. Can you just explain to me? Did you ever have a relationship with Dexter? How does he fit into all of this and and, and the story that he's telling? Well, Dexter is a, a childhood friend of mine um, mm-hmm. and from East Flatbush. And when he, he had moved out of Flatbush and moved to Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, Bed-Stuy kind of area, and we were cordial, but we weren't friends after that. Um, I, and I guess... He either knew the guys who ended up robbing um, Tupac or he was a part of it, uh, I would assume. But um, that was n- that had nothing to do with me. Like, that had absolutely... But I do know Dexter. I know Dexter. From what, I've been 12 years old. We were, um, we were childhood guys who would steal newspapers and sell them by the train station. In starting these calls with Jimmy, the amount of information, the amount of characters, and the amount of story to ingest was a lot. It was almost too much. I started to take notes. I started to look through all the court documents, the transcripts, and the evidence the government had against Jimmy. Remember, they never caught him red-handed on wiretaps talking about drugs or money. They never caught him on surveillance, moving drugs or money. The evidence they presented at trial heavily relied on a team of informants, all guys who worked around Jimmy, who all had incentive to make Jimmy the kingpin. Todd Kaminsky, the prosecutor, had the power and the ability to offer anyone a get out of jail free card as long as you told the narrative or the story that he wanted. A story that put Jimmy at the top of a nationwide narcotics operation. 